0: Hello and welcome. You're listening to Housing for All, the podcast that believes we all deserve a great home that allows us to flourish. I'm Chris.
1: And I'm Mary.
2: And I'm Andrew. So we spent the last couple episodes taking a look at a few different systems from around the world and how um, how different countries have... uh, address similar or oftentimes
0: worse problems than uh, America did. But um, what are we what are we doing today? Well, we're totally shifting gears today. We're going to be focusing on the American housing system, looking at how and why the federal government subsidizes homeownership. In part one, we're going to be looking at problems part two'll we'll look at how these problems were eventually solved
1: I'm sure it'll make me feel very patriotic and proud of my country <laughs> uh,
2: yeah
0: well let's uh let's let's get into it eh so Andrew Chris by the end of this episode we will convince you that you live in public housing
2: I'm very intrigued to see how you do that because um, and I say this not as a part of any bit. Legitimately, I'm pretty sure that I don't. I've, um, I don't think the government owns my house. But I also trust you, and I'm very curious. So
1: yeah, it turns out we don't know nothing about nothing. Ta- Free housing. <laughs> take take me on a journey.
0: T- okay, Show me the world. So, so for the, for the listeners, Andrew is a homeowner, and the idea behind this episode is that all homeowners live in public housing. That's what we're covering. The idea for next episode is that all renters live in public housing as well we just we all live in public housing Hmm. um so we had a discussion last episode about the definition of public housing and here we're going to have to use a looser definition and the definition is going to be would this housing exist without public support Hmm. if so it's public housing or would the loan that was used to buy the home exist without public support? And if so, it's public housing. Fair enough.
1: Okay. I, I think this is going to be a classic situation where we realize that we have all of the downsides of public housing and none of the upsides. <laughs> Don't and we unknowingly, unknowingly, we are getting less, <laughs> less than we are fully owed by our government, <laughs> which I feel is like the theme of my adult years.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So don't spoil it for me slash if you think you're, this is a spoiler, go back to the last few episodes <laughs> get caught up.
1: This is not so much a spoiler as it is just logical conclusions. <laughs> the power
2: of deductive reasoning. I Yes, respect that.
1: indeed. Yeah. Indeed. So, Watson.
0: Sherlock, you're, you're reading uh, Sherlock Holmes, if you will. Yeah. So we now we did use a different definition last episode. And last episode's definition for public housing was government supported nonprofit social mission. Um. Right, It didn't have to be government owned right. um, but it we said government supported nonprofit social mission, and that was the way that made most sense to define public housing and Today's definition is more expansive. We're just saying if it's government supported, then it's public housing. The problem for last episode, if we used that more expansive definition, then everything would have been public housing, and the episode just wouldn't have made any sense, right. Every housing system in the world is the same it's all public housing, you know, there's no difference between Singapore and the United States because it's all public housing. I mean, it just wouldn't have made any sense. Sure, sure.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. And also, I think that before we were really focused on individual cases that approach public housing in different and interesting ways. Yeah. Whereas this is more looking at um, a system that we think we understand, at least on a kind of a gut level, more critically and asking ourselves, why don't we consider this public housing?
0: Indeed yeah 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 and so andrew your your gut was like well i don't think the government owns my house um but you know like thinking back to our debate last episode um about you know dutch public housing is not owned by the government but it actually has a stronger social mission than swedish public housing which is owned by the government and so um does the government own your housing doesn't really um it's not an important it's not an important thing when we're talking about public housing what's sure. important is the social mission and, and the nonprofit nature
1: Got or it. at least that from what we've learned so far seems to be what allows it to work or not
0: right right yeah so the point is that almost everyone lives in housing that has been directly and heavily subsidized by the government that it just makes more sense to think of it as public housing now, usually the subsidies are not obvious, right? Our housing system seems almost totally private with the government intervention limited to safety net programs for the poor, like Section 8 vouchers or public housing. But that's simply not true. That's an illusion. Nearly all housing is subsidized by the government. Hmm.
1: Damn. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Some background <laughs> before we get started. Um, so government at all levels from cities to states to the federal government, go to extraordinary lengths to promote housing. So to keep this episode at a manageable length, we had to pick and choose. We are only talking about trillion-dollar programs. That's <laughs> trillion with a T. I
1: mean, go uh, big or go home. Uh, yeah, I, I don't, I mean, really,
2: I don't think um, the idea of a billion is kind of staggering to me that whole idea of it's like counting to a million takes like a few hours, or counting to a billion takes like three weeks, or that that's something like that. Um, a trillion, I, I don't, <laughs> I don't want to sound like a fool. I hardly even conceive of the possibility that trillions would even be like a thing that you could speak about money in. That's 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 staggering.
1: No, that's so to, much damn money. Talk to Elon Musk.
2: Uh,
0: yeah. It's it's a mind boggling amount of money. Yeah, it really is. Um, But so just to like just to like really paint a picture and show how much we spend promoting housing um, before we talk about today's programs, um, let's look at some of the programs just briefly that we don't have time for because, you know, they're too small. And a good benchmark to use is the federal government's three major programs for housing the poor. Right. Section eight is a $30 billion per year program. Low income housing tax credits is a $10 billion per year program, right? These are both very inefficient and wasteful programs. Um, Much of that spending never actually benefits low income families, kind of gets captured by for profit interests. Um, But okay, that's $40 billion per year. Like we talked about last time, the government spends nothing on public housing. It has to be financially self-sustaining. So about forty billion dollars per year is spent on housing for the poor,
1: and Section Eight really, from what I under—I I did some reading about Section Eight, did mm. a little bit of homework. It seems like Section Eight was basically them being like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, we don't really want to manage these buildings anymore, so we're just going to give you these vouchers, and you're basically just at the mercy of the free market. Enjoy, <laughs> have fun, guys."
0: Yeah, there's we could do an entire episode on the problems of of Section Eight. Um, cause yeah, I mean, there's, there's problems of, of finding people that'll actually take your voucher, like the quality of the housing. Um, there's problems where ha- section eight seems to increase the market, re- Market rents, um, because your typical section eight, like your typical landlord that's got a section eight tenant is charging above market rents. So um, so there's like evidence that it actually contributes to rising rents. Um, it's just a complete disaster of a program. Um, so so anyway, um, so 40 billion dollars per year is what we spend housing, housing the poor. Um, some of the programs that subsidize home ownership that we won't be talking about because they're too small. 70 billion dollars per year is spent on the mortgage interest tax deduction thirty three billion dollars per year is spent on the property tax deduction thirty two billion dollars per year is spent on the capital gains tax deduction specifically for when people sell their homes
1: hmm. I mean why would we even talk about that that's that's like couch money you know around <laughs> right. who can't who can't a snap of fingers just pull together at least thirty two billion dollars <laughs> <to> <laughs> anytime they need it
0: so So, right. So, so put together, just these three programs are $135 billion per year, and they're too small to make the cut for this episode. And yet they're more than four times as expensive as all housing assistance for the poor.
1: Seems fair. Seems good. Yeah, that's hmm. <laughs> Makes sense.
2: Yeah, it's good to see our priorities are very much aligned with where they need to be. That's, yep. that's it very almost, deeply encouraging. It's
1: almost as if all of the woes that we're experiencing uh, this year and for the last, I don't know, my whole adult life uh, are almost like something that we made and could have been <laughs> foreseen potentially. Um, <laughs> yeah. interesting. I mean,
2: but but the free market, Mary.
1: Right. It makes everything
0: fair for everybody. We just need
1: to make more jobs. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs)
0: So so we, you know, we can't, you know, obviously these are programs that we're not talking about. So we're not going to get into the structure um, of the programs and why they work the way that they do. But really, these programs just subsidize mansions and vacation homes because the people who benefit from these programs are dispropor- are disproportionately very, very wealthy. And so basically, they're just subsidies for mansions and vacation homes. Um,
1: <laughs> so I'm not typically one of those people, although there are, I don't know, the older I get and the more I become like, you, you know, be like my tax dollars are at work and why can't they go to things I want them to go to? And blah, 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 blah. I don't think there's a human being alive That can't feel angry that their tax dollars go to benefit vacation homes. That is (laughs) maddening.
2: Yeah, I hadn't really ever heard. I mean, I think like I was sort of vaguely aware of some of these these ideas, not not um, not to the not to the level that I am now. But I also never heard it framed quite so um, so punchily. Let's say that's that's um, makes me hate the world a bit. I'll be quite quite honest with you. Um, But people need to relax. Rich people they they got a lot of stress in their lives, so.
1: I mean, <laughs> yeah, if you don't have a good. vacation home, why even be alive? <laughs> Actually, I am very, very anti-vacation home. Why would you decide that you're just going to go to one place all the time for the rest of your life? Yeah. If you can afford to take vacations, variety is a spice of life.
2: If you have enough money that's such that you need a subsidy for your vacation home, why even buy a vacation
0: home? Just buy plane tickets. <laughs> is there a subsidy for that? That's what I'm saying. One day. <laughs> so so another, another program we're going to have to leave out just for time. Is the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation or FDIC. Mm, Yeah. So if a bank were to fail, the federal government would pay every penny of deposits up to two hundred and fifty thousand dollars on every deposit in the entire bank. It's really hard to impress just how important this is to a functioning banking system. And obviously, home loans go through the banks, which literally could not function without the FDIC. Hmm. And the FDIC is covering every bank and credit union account in the entire country. So literally hundreds of millions of accounts. This is a program that's, you know, too small for us to to really be worthy of this episode. <laughs>
2: Yeah, because isn't that isn't that the program that emerged one of the one of these social safety net programs that emerged from the Great Depression, right? That you can't when all the banks failed uh, <laughs> last time without getting a bailout. Uh, we were like, maybe we should insure this,
0: right? is that I, that's yeah so fair. we are we are going headlong into the great depression and so originally yeah. <laughs> I had <laughs>
1: both in this podcast and generally as a country <laughs> <laughs> uh.
0: <laughs> so originally um yeah i mean it just fit in so well to talk about the fdic originally but it was just too long so i i chopped it out fair. um but so these are two ideas that really this story needs to be told not enough people know about them the easiest way to understand how home ownership is subsidized is to look at the housing crisis of the Great Depression and the programs that ended that housing crisis. All of the programs that today make home ownership work in its current form were created in response to the Great Depression. Hmm. Right. Mostly these are New Deal programs and. Another really key issue we learned in the first two episodes about housing systems where important reforms were eventually repealed and the problems that that caused. And, you know, basically, people just forgot how bad their housing systems were prior to these reforms. And that's why they allowed things to be repealed. But we're (laughs) not going (laughs) away. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. So, but we're not going to make that same mistake. Let's really understand what our housing system was like prior to the New Deal, because as bad as things are now, our housing system could be a lot worse. Prior to the Great Depression, the homeownership rate historically was right around forty-five percent. Remind and, us
1: again what it is currently.
0: Uh, so, since the New Deal, the house, the homeownership rate has pretty consistently been about two-thirds.
1: Oh, okay. So Mm -hmm. a a massive, massive jump. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. A huge jump. So we I mean, just right off the bat, the New Deal turned us from a majority renter country into a majority homeowner country. Hmm. And, you know, obviously, during the Great Depression, uh, that homeownership rate fell even lower. Um, But so it it you know, it it did something. It did something big. Uh, So why? Why were so few people homeowners prior to the New Deal? Like, what was standing in their way?
1: I would suspect that there really just wasn't a concept of, like, lots of loans for people. Oh, yeah. Like, that if you wanted to own something, you pretty much had to buy it outright or you inherited it, which is why you would have, like, a little bit less than the population, like, half the population owning their homes. It would just take so long to save up that much money um, that people rented or leased or whatever Mm -hmm. they did, whatever they called it back then, back in the bad old days. Hmm. That'd be my guess.
0: Sure. So, um, so I mean, on the right track. Um, the reason I think is it's it's pretty simple. Is that mortgages just sucked. Um, there weren't enough of them, and the ones that there were were just terrible. So, the first thing, a home loan normally required a fifty percent down payment. Fifty percent. Yes. That's, 50%. Ins- that's insane. Yeah. So oh right God. off the bat, <laughs> not many people can save up for that 50% down payment. So that that explains a lot of it. Wow. Um, so there were, if you had access to a, a major bank and were very credit worthy, it might be a little bit lower than 50%, but 50% was your typical down payment requirement. Um, <laughs> now, this is a mouthful. Home loans were short term interest only balloon loans that did not amortize. Um, So, okay, so that that was a mouthful. So (laughs) let's unpack what what that all means. Um, So have have you heard the term amortizing or amortization? I actually have not. Okay. well, yes. So so amortizing means that part of your monthly loan payment pays off your loan principal. Right, so that's uh, that means that the amount that you owe goes down okay. and the rest of your monthly loan payment is interest. And so that's basically profit for the bank. So imagine that I've got a $2,000 monthly payment and let's say for this month, uh, $1,500 is my interest payment and $500 is my principal payment. Um, right. I'm just writing a check for $2,000. I don't necessarily, uh, like, unless I'm looking at my statement really carefully, I'm not going to actually know how it breaks down, but sure. let's just say that's how it breaks down. So the bank gets $1,500 profit, right? That's the interest portion. Mm-hmm. And the amount that I owe goes down by $500. So, you know, for example, so if I owed $70,000, uh, after making this payment of $2,000, I would owe Sixty-nine thousand five hundred dollars, because five hundred of that went to the principal. Got gotcha. you. Am I making sense? Yeah. So, so sure. basically, most of the money you're paying is just profit for the bank. And yeah, as you yeah. Get, yeah, so I mean, as you get closer to the end, um, you're then it's it it reverses and most of the money goes to principal. Okay. Um, but for the first, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a pretty if you actually look at a they're called amortization tables and you see like how much of your payments throughout the lifetime of the mortgage is going to profit for the bank versus principal. It's, it's pretty amazing. Hmm. Um, you're, I mean, you, depending on the interest rate, a bank is going to, you know, double their money over the lifetime of the loan. Um, So in any case, but that's neither that's that's not really (laughs) either here, the here or there for for this. So um, anyway, if you have a home loan or a car loan, you can actually look at your your statements and uh, see each month how the total amount that you owe goes down. Hmm. Okay. so amortize means that your monthly payment is calculated so that your loan balance is exactly zero at the end of the loan term. Got you. And and this
2: sort of like this this factors in this sort of the shifting percentages of the principal versus the interest you mentioned earlier, right? Like this is sort of a somebody with a calculator <laughs> figures out <laughs> how to plan yeah. this this whole An thing. An abacus.
0: Yes, please. Yes, sorry, sorry. Yep. Yeah. It, yeah. Exactly. So you so you you knew what what amortize was because that's that's you know we don't even talk about you know does my loan amortize because mm-hmm. that's just what a loan is, right? Yeah. Uh, you wouldn't get a loan that didn't amortize. Because then
2: you'd be paying it off the rest of you forever. You'd never pay it off. You'd just be uh, renting.
1: One thing. We do have loans called that. They're called student loans. <laughs> uh.
0: so, um So, and then, of course, in order for a home loan to amortize, um, it's got to be a long term, right? Mm. It's got to be 20 to 30 years. There's no way that you could pay back a home, you know, $200,000 loan, $300,000 loan in just a few years time. You're going to have have to have a nice long-term like 20 to 30 years in order to amortize sure okay so home loans prior to the new deal were balloon loans they were short-term they were non-amortizing and interest only um so a typical loan term was five years but the range was about one to seven years so you have to pay
2: half the half the cost of the house at the beginning of the process and you have five years to pay off the rest of it. Five, not exactly. One to
0: seven, I guess. Not exactly. So actually not at all. Um, so right away, you can tell something is something is very different from what we do, because, you know, we have to have you know, we have those very long loan terms. Mm-hmm. And back in the day, right, five years was a typical loan. Um The other another part of that, uh, that definition of this loan was interest only. Mm -hmm. So imagine that I take out a one hundred thousand dollar home loan at six percent and I've got a four year term. So that's pretty competitive, right? Six percent is is pretty low for the pre new new deal era. OK, so six percent of one hundred thousand dollars is six thousand dollars. And that's my interest. So I have to pay the bank $6,000 each year, split up into 12 monthly payments. Um, The bank does not accept any principal payments. Hmm. At the end of my four-year term, the loan balance will still be $100,000.
2: Oh, so this is basically, so they're getting their profit up front, kind of. If the interest is what they're profiting off of.
0: Right, so it's interest only. Got you. so the entire loan term every penny goes back to the bank Hmm. um now at the end of my four-year term i must pay one hundred thousand dollars or lose my home
2: (laughs) that's so much money in such a short amount of time oh my god
0: (laughs) yeah so yeah so this is called a balloon payment And obviously, I'm not going to be able to pay the full $100,000. If I needed $100,000 to buy a home (laughs) four years ago, I'm still going to, you know, I'm not going to come up with $100,000 cash. So I'm going to have to find a new loan. And, you know, maybe I saved up $5,000 and I can make my balloon payment of $100,000 with $5,000 cash and a new mortgage for $95,000, but often people just renewed the loan from the same lender for the same amount and they just have a new interest rate. Oh, so it, so this is basically like renting from the bank so,
2: so <laughs> Literally.
1: well it's like renting but also if your landlord at the end was like hey you've been paying what i've been asking for in rent but actually you still owe me money
2: yeah, a lot of money actually yeah. you
1: know what? it's sort of like when you move out when you rent
2: yeah no it's yeah. it's
0: it's the worst security deposit i can imagine yep so yeah so the the next line on my outline says this sucks discuss <laughs> <laughs> i don't even,
2: I, I guess like this is this is it's a,
1: like so crooked yeah
2: like. <laughs> I, i'll i'll pose the question the, the very charitable question was this crooked or did they just not have any did they just did they not know any better by any chance
0: um you know it's it's not that they didn't know any better and i don't i mean i don't think it was crooked um the problem What we're going to unpack like in, in the next section, why things were like this and why they couldn't have been better. It does. It is. It is.
2: I mean, I, my next question, I I, I feel I, I answered. It was answered very clearly. I would say, how is this sustainable? I'm guessing it probably wasn't since things have changed oh pretty dramatically. And <laughs> oh, there was oh
0: my, no. a pretty, pretty
2: big financial crisis.
0: <laughs> so, afterwards. OK, so first. So first, let's let's think about how this sucks for an ordinary person. And then we'll talk about how they blow up the economy. <laughs> um, so, OK, so you've got high interest rates. Sure. Right. That's that sucks because, you know, you're you can't afford as big or as nice of a home. Um, You can't actually pay down your debt. Mm -hmm. And that's that's terrible. You have a scramble for a new loan every few years with a catastrophe. If you can't find one, that's terrible. I mean, you know, we we're all homeowners and I don't imagine that you enjoyed applying for your home loan. Um, imagine having to do that every one to seven years <laughs> with I mean, with like a with a catastrophe hanging over your head if you can't find. one. Yeah, that's that's um, that's awful. And 50% down payment. That's you know, that's that's terrible. I mean, you know, like the high interest rates, right? That just means that you can't afford as nice of a home or as big of a home, um, right, because of those requirements. And you also can't
2: like get a better home either. This sort of defeats the entire right. like cycle that we've come to understand, like if you because you we, basically you move in the house you're going to die in it sounds like in this system, and then you then you frantically reach out for the privilege to borrow more money at a higher interest rate every five years so that you
0: have the luxury of dying in this garbage house <laughs> right, right so so not a not a good system for an individual borrower no not even a little um, bit.
2: wow but. <laughs>
0: But they're also um, so, yeah, a lot of room for improvement. Um, but balloon mortgages were also an economic disaster waiting to happen. Mm. So it wasn't just the individual or the individual borrowers that were in trouble. It was really the entire economy because it's already a really bad system when times are good. But when times are bad, the system just collapses like a house of cards. I can- Do you see <laughs> why uh, I
2: I do, I will, before I answer that question, I do wish from a historical terminology perspective that they had called these bubble loans because, you know, the bubble pops, um, but balloons also pop. Uh, I'm guessing that, you know, <laughs> at a certain point, like if there's a financial crisis, the banks don't have the money to lend if people can't pay exactly. yeah so like there's just this this loop breaks down once
1: again it's the old george bailey yeah
2: thing. I, I can't
1: we don't have the money here, here. it's in your home and your home and your yeah. home like you need to you need to constantly be ha- allowing people to have new loans the, the, to keep your business going
2: the mr potters of the world I, I i understand the villainy in it's a wonderful life slightly more than i did before there is, you go which is you know silver
0: lines. Frank
1: Capra, huge detestable monster, but you did make good movies.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, I mean, yeah, so you, you nailed it. So, basically if the economy is bad, banks won't be able to originate new balloon loans and people won't be able to cover their balloon payments. And so, through no fault of their own, a lot of people are going to lose their home. Hmm. This is exactly what happened in the Great Depression. One third of all banks failed. So banks can barely stay open and nobody is able to lend, right? Just keeping just keeping the lights on is is enough. Um, nobody is able to make any loans. And so people are losing their homes in massive numbers. At the height of the Great Depression, nearly 10 percent of all American homes were in foreclosure. Jesus, I mean, like, looking I mean, just
2: I knew it was bad, but <laughs>
0: you know, you know. And 25% of all American homeowners lost their homes in foreclosure. So and then, again, you know, again, yes, people who lost their job lost their home, right? They couldn't make those payments anymore. But even people who did not lose their job were still losing their home because they couldn't get a loan to cover a balloon payment. Jesus. That's All right. So any questions about that? I
2: mean, why I guess is the biggest question. Okay. <laughs> that's, <laughs> but, that's the, I mean, so
0: that's the next section. Yeah. Well, here we go. Beautiful, beautiful segue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <that's>, yeah. <laughs> so, okay. So now this is, um, this is probably the most technical section of the whole series, but it's really important. It's really going to pay off. So, you know, bear with us. Um, so as we, you know, as we've kind of alluded to before, the low interest, long term fixed rate loans for homeownership are considered normal today, and we take them for granted. Um, but obviously, we shouldn't take these for granted because that's not how things used to be. Yeah. And so the question is, you know, why? Why didn't the pre New Deal housing system offer low interest, long term fixed rate mortgages and the reason is because nobody in their right mind would offer low interest long-term fixed rate mortgages and there's four reasons number one is credit risk and so credit risk is simply the risk that the borrower won't be able to pay back the loan right so somebody takes out a loan and you know, something, there's a personal tragedy, they lose their job, they get very sick, they die, um, and they're not able to pay back the loan. And so you as the lender, uh, you lose a lot of money. That's called credit risk. Okay. And so the adage, don't put all your eggs in one basket, makes a lot of sense here. right? Because a home loan is a very, very big loan, and it's risky for a bank to put so many eggs into one basket. Fair. I I, I suppose, yeah. (laughs) So this explains a lot of of why, why these mortgages were so terrible, right? Because of this risk, lenders are just unwilling to originate very many home loans. They're just too big. Um, In order to compensate for this risk, they have to charge high interest rates and um, they also require a 50% down payment, right? Because the down payment makes the loan safer. You get to keep the down payment if the borrower can't repay the loan. So making sense so far.
2: Yeah. On paper.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Although you just want to be like, why even bother? (laughs) Like, why why even, why even try? Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, okay. So, so, so that's, that's just one of the four. And that's, that's the most straightforward one, right? Don't put all your eggs in one basket. Sure. Um, Okay. So the second one is called interest rate risk. So let's imagine that I get a loan at five percent interest for five years and then all of a sudden the interest rates increase to eight percent. The bank is actually going to lose money on that loan. Ah, do you know? Do you know why? Well, because they, they if someone that
2: in in the present, I suppose, in the scenario got that loan at the higher rates, they're missing out on giving that money to somebody who would pay them more money.
0: Right. <laughs> not exactly. Um, so, you know, how banks worked back then and, you know, the way that we think of banks working today, um, is that you have, you know, you have people taking out loans and then you have depositors. Mm-hmm. And so, um, the bank is the money that they're actually lending out is the money that people put into savings accounts. Oh, uh, so it makes sense. I guess I never really thought of it like that though. Right. So so if that I mean, so if we, if we go back to it's a wonderful life, like, you know, where he says, I don't have your money, you know, it's in this neighbor's house, that neighbor's house. Mm-hmm. That's exactly I mean, that's exactly why. Right. So. Um, a, a typical bank is going to take 80 percent of all the deposits and make loans out of it. Hmm. That's and, a, that's a um, that's a that's a lot of the deposits yeah yeah and so that's why the fdic is so important um because if if people you know if if people try withdrawing their money all at the same time because i don't know the economy's bad um (laughs) then the bank's gonna collapse yeah um and there's only you know there's only 20 percent of the money is actually there so but now you know you don't just give away your money to the bank to lend out to somebody out of the goodness of your heart right the bank is paying you A percentage interest on your savings
2: based on the money they get from those investments right
0: well so the interest rates are determined by the market the bank doesn't have any control over the interest rates okay and so now in this example right i had a five percent interest interest rate and then the rate suddenly increased to eight percent well the bank is going to have to pay the depositors Based on that higher eight percent interest. Oh, rate. because they don't have control over the actual rate and what they then must pay their depositors. I got you. you know? Right. Yeah. Right. Right. And so obviously the bank is paying their depositors a lower percentage than you know than the interest on the loans. Um, but you know if there's a big change that, like that, then the bank you know and, and they're going to lose money. Hmm. So and and the interest rates can't be predicted. Um. The bank doesn't know what the interest rates are going to do next year. So does that make sense certainly does okay um now it doesn't work in reverse so that okay so that's interest rate risk but it doesn't work in reverse so let's say the opposite happens let's say i get a loan at eight percent interest and the interest rates drop to five percent the bank does not make a profit on that um they might even lose money on that um you know, you would think, well, that's great. You know, they've got him locked in for five years at 8% interest and the rates suddenly fell to 5%. You know, the bank's got to be making a ton of money on this. Um, why? Why not, though? Even today, even today, if you had a loan and you knew that interest rates had fallen, okay. what would you do? Oh,
2: I guess um, this is my my own absence of financial knowledge. Refinance
0: the loan. Perhaps? Exactly. Uh-huh. Exactly. You'll simply walk across the street to a competitor and get a loan at the 5% interest rate. See, I paid. I had
2: enough uh, financial services commercials in the background to finally actually learn something from them that became useful in this context. So thank you, TV. <laughs> I
1: suppose. Learning everything you need to learn from TV, like E.T.
0: Hey, look at that. <laughs> So, um, so, um, yeah, so, you know, now at this point, right, the bank, um, they had administrative costs to originate that loan. And if you, you know, if you refinance really quickly, um, probably, you know, they're getting their, you know, you're paying off the loan very early. They might not have recovered those administrative costs and they might actually lose money. Hmm. And so this is called prepayment risk. And so interest rate risk and prepayment risk are kind of, you know very similar, they're kind of the opposite of each other, gotcha, but also but both are so, threats to a to a bank <laughs> exactly, and so this explains why they offered such short terms hmm. so when interest rates change, you know if they go up, that hurts you, if it goes down, it hurts you, yeah, um, and so over a long term, over twenty years or over thirty years, you can be certain that you're going to have an interest rate or a prepayment problem. Sure. And so you're kind of making it less, or so you're making it less risky if you have a shorter term that there's going to be, you know, got you. Cause there's more, there's less so you, chance of change in five years than there is in 20. Right. Right. Or if interest rates suddenly, you know, suddenly rise, um, you're only locked into that for, you know, well, a few, we've only got a few more years. It's not like you've got 25 more years. Yeah of this you know locked in low interest rate Hmm. interesting yeah i get it okay um so so yeah so in just over over a long time you can be certain that that you're going to have a problem with the interest rate um okay the fourth one and the last one is liquidity risk so the way to explain liquidity, let's imagine that I have a diamond ring that's worth $10,000. And I also <laughs> la have la. an electricity bill. Yeah, la. I also have an electricity bill of $50, right? So my assets are $10,000 and that's way more than my liabilities of $50. Sure. But I have a liquidity problem and I'm sure you see what it is.
2: Because you can't, uh, you can't make change on a $10,000 diamond ring. Right. Um, exactly also, i can't
1: also diamonds like depreciate in value so fast oh well no <laughs> one's thought? gonna buy your ring for ten thousand dollars
2: but they are forever Nope. forever losing value they are i guess
1: <laughs> 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 they are forever causing misery and suffering in the world <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and not worth they're like uh they're like a leather jacket bought on vacation super cool um <laughs> they're not as cool as you think they are and they're always way overpriced
2: wow wow now you tell me okay cool yeah. hey
0: <laughs> you're, you're fistful of diamond rings in your leather jacket
1: <laughs> you're like this is how i'm gonna retire yeah. <laughs> it's all so, the whole all right, beanie so you- baby thing all over again just because someone tells you something's worth something doesn't mean anyone wants to pay you that
2: even a beanie baby is full of diamonds which would be just like madness. Also, I feel that like would just that would not be very structurally sound. Diamonds are very hard, and peanut babies are soft by nature.
1: Peanut babies are full of tiny hard beans.
2: Yeah, you make a good
0: point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you've so yeah you've nailed it. You can't chunk off a fifty dollar chunk of diamond ring and mail it to the utility bill. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we this this is an illiquid asset. That's that's the technical term. Um, it's the diamond ring is very valuable, but it's illiquid. Um, you can't you know, you can't split it up if you need fifty dollars for you for your utility bill. Gotcha. You? For our purposes, cash is the only type of liquid asset. If we were going to get really technical, um, sometimes you can consider very short term assets as being liquid. Um, but for our purposes, cash is the only type of liquid asset. All right. Okay, so liquidity risk is the chance that a bank's liabilities will exceed its liquid assets. So its assets may still exceed its liabilities, but the problem is if those assets are illiquid. So if you have, let's say, just a bunch of houses...
1: That you've you, been swindling people out of yeah. interest rates for, 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 let's say, four years. And
2: you happen to need to you know buy lunch, but they don't take houses at... Yeah. Your local restaurant, your local pub. Um, <laughs> the bank is out, of, is, is out
0: a bit out of luck. Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, it's even, it's even less liquid than a house, right? You're, you're talking about the mortgage, like the promise for the borrower to pay you back over time.
1: Right. It's so- sort of like, do you want to extort this person? I can pay you and <laughs> the chance of extorting this person.
0: <laughs> so, so, so yeah. So, um, so, uh, you know just sort of sort of you know do a hypothetical with some numbers just kind of illustrate um so let's say a bank lends out two hundred thousand dollars for a home loan and it's a 30-year term and over those 30 years at well at the end of those 30 years it, it will make a profit right it's going to recover that two hundred thousand dollars and then depending on the interest rate it's probably going to make at least two hundred thousand dollars on top of that for like a 100 percent profit But once that $200,000 is out the door, the bank can't take some of it back, right? Like if they are short and need to pay the salary of the bank tellers or the bank's water bill, or like, you know, the, the, the bank branch's water bill is due where they can't take that back. So the money isn't gone because they still own the mortgage, but it, you know, the money's locked up in that loan. (laughs) So if the loan will pay back the two hundred thousand dollars they lent out, as well as generate two hundred thousand dollars profit, the bank might be willing to sell it for three hundred thousand dollars today. So, so that they can, yeah, I get it. So, so even though it is a
2: loss in terms of potential money, it's money in your pocket that you
0: can do things with. That you have to, yeah, do. exactly. Gotcha. Exactly, um, so and it's just and it's not just the the liquidity risk that they're um, that they're taking care of, right? Credit risk, interest rate risk, and prepayment risk are are gone, right? Because if the borrower can't pay back the loan, or if there's a problem with the interest rates, right, the bank doesn't own that loan anymore. Yeah. If somebody else has bought it. It's somebody else's problem. Um, so so not having to deal with that risk is great. Yeah. And then liquidity risk is solved, right? As you said, you had an illiquid loan, and now you have Cash, sweet, sweet liquid cash, just flowing, yes. <laughs> flowing forth,
1: flowing like diamonds from a beanie baby.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, so now, and then, you know, a really, a really key point here that we're going to keep coming back to over and over this episode is that after selling that loan, the bank is probably going to use the cash to make another home loan, hmm. right?
2: Okay. So, so yeah, so then, yeah, because that's it keeps the wheels of of, of interest based acqu- or money making turning. Because then you, it, but of course, I guess at that point, then you have the situation where they 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 sell the loan, they give it and make another loan, and then they just sell that loan. But they're not actually finalizing the deal on anything. They're not they're not like falling through to completion any the the loans that they've made. Is that does that make sense? Well, that doesn't matter. Yeah, I guess right? I guess I mean, not, yeah, that's still, not their problem. Yeah, there's still somebody's still passing. The, so basically, they're just sort of shifting loans around. They're shifting imaginary money around. <laughs> right, well, imaginary, right. They're passing.
0: Like, yeah. The promise they're passing of money. risk on Right. They're passing risk on someone else hmm. and some of the profits they get to keep, but they're passing the risk on someone else. Gotcha. Um, so, I mean, so. Right. So the point is, like, you can't make a loan out of another loan. Yeah. But you can make another loan. Out of the cash you get from selling a loan. Hmm.
2: Finance is so, so bizarre. I, just, I feel like if you say because I think, I mean like it, obviously this makes sense, but at the same time you say you can't make a loan from a loan, but you can make a loan from selling a loan, which it sounds like a sort of weird circular logic to it.
1: I mean, I th- right, I th- right, I no, it totally. I think it's best summed up by I'll gladly pay you tomorrow for a hamburger I eat today. <laughs> i'll I'll gladly give you a loan tomorrow
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah for
1: someone's whole savings that i'm going to gobble up today (laughs)
0: Hmm. so um okay so anyway that's so that's a really that's a really important point is that um it's not that the bank doesn't have enough money to make a second loan sure it's that they don't have enough liquidity to make a second loan got you They would love to make another loan, but they can't because it's not liquid. So unless there's unless there's a way to turn that illiquid loan into liquid cash, the bank can only make one loan Hmm. if they can if they can find somebody to sell it to, then they're able to make another loan. But if there's you know, if there's no way to turn that into liquid cash, then there's no way to to make another loan. Gotcha. So. Uh, basically, a good balance of profit and managing risk is to originate a loan, sell it, use the cash from that sale to originate another loan and sell it and just kind of do this over and over and over, hmm. right? Because you're you're accepting less profit overall by selling it, but you're gaining you you're gaining liquidity and, you know, to just do that over and over.
2: Hmm. Just keep, basically keep this sort of it's a game of hot potato with people's savings and their homes, <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I did use the term hot potato later on. So (laughs) that's yeah, that's exactly that's exactly right. Um, So, okay, so the bottom line on liquidity risk, it's really hard for a bank to tie up a huge sum of money in an illiquid asset, even if they stand to make a profit in the long term, they will have a liquidity problem in the short term so even and this is this is really important even if the credit risk were zero right so even if the bank had a crystal ball hmm. and they could look into the future and they could be certain that the loan would get paid back on time and in full liquidity risk makes them reluctant to make that loan uh to make a loan that's large or has a long term hmm. gotcha it's that makes sense yeah it's it's
2: I'm, I'm realizing how little I know about finance, but no, this does make sense. Um,
0: yeah. Cool. Yeah. I mean, that's why our housing system can be the way it is. is because like there's, I mean, there, you know, these things, people don't understand what's going on. Yeah.
2: I mean, this is, these are things uh, I and if take they did. For they granted. would be upset. Yeah. And like, I mean, so far this has been, this all shows me like taking things for granted and feeling foolish because I did. <laughs> um, so let's keep that going. It's it's been going, it's been working for us. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. Um, but no, that's um, that's amazing. And I guess I can so yeah I can. This does make it again like with the, with the eyes of history, I can see the foolishness of the pre New Deal um, loan practices. But I also appreciate that like yeah that's a that's a huge risk. Like I I never I never really thought of the the perspective that it was a risk for a bank to home me i guess or give me the means to home
0: myself right right and like i mean like we said a third of all banks failed like back in the day they would let those banks fail yeah like they don't let them fail anymore um that's that's a theme that will come up towards (laughs) the end actually um so okay so let's conclude this section so it's really technical um maybe you know, kind of confusing. So let's try to tie this together. So I know that it's not realistic for an ordinary listener to just remember everything that we talked about in this section, but please do try to remember the two most important things. Number one, low interest, long-term fixed rate loans for homeownership are considered normal in our housing system. We take them for granted, but we shouldn't. Why not? Because no one in their right mind would make a low interest, long term fixed rate loan. And that's the part that I want you to remember. Nobody in their right mind would make a low interest, long term fixed rate home loan. And prior to the new deal, nobody did. Now, of course, if you get into an argument with someone, you can come back and listen to this episode again and refresh your memory. Uh, But the short version is that Low interest, long term fixed rate loans are impossible because 30 years is a long time and banks can be certain that they will get hit by liquidity risk, interest rate risk and prepayment risk. So without some sort of public service mission to disregard those risks and an entity that is massive enough to deal with those risks, there would not be low interest, long term fixed rate home loans. And that's basically what the New Deal did. Hmm. So, with me so far? Yeah, I'm, I'm. Thank you, FDR. I will say also to your
2: first <laughs> question, I am starting to feel more convinced that I'm living in public housing. As okay, we right. As we start Thanks. to dig into the details here, I see where you're okay, taking sure. this. I, I can. I can. Okay. All right. Episode over. We convinced.
0: You. No. All right. So, um, the second thing. <laughs> I'm like that I'm like seventy percent
2: there. Just Just to so clear. not all. Great. The way. Great. Oh, okay. So keep all, all, it going. all right. We'll keep going. <laughs> Don't cut yet.
0: Right. Okay. All right. So number one, no one in their right mind would make a low interest, long term fixed rate loan. Uh, The second thing to remember is liquidity, right? A bank would love to make more and more and more loans, but once they make a loan, That asset is illiquid. It's a valuable asset, but it's one that's locked up and inaccessible. It's illiquid. So unless there's a way to turn the illiquid loans into liquid cash, there is a hard limit to the number of loans a bank can actually make. Loans
2: are crazy. Cash is king. (laughs)
0: Yeah, Okay. that works.
1: As always, thank you for listening to Housing for All. You can check us out on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, all the greats. Anywhere you get quality, fine podcasts, we are there. And while you're there, please subscribe, rate, or leave us a little review. Those things help us out tremendously. You can also visit um, Chris's website, housing4.us, numeral 4, .us, um, for more information about uh, his project. And you can find the podcast on outrageousmechanisms.com. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Out.
2: Rageous.